uh, my condolences to the families and colleagues of the U.S. Embassy local employees killed in Nigeria yesterday. Uh, as career uh, Foreign Service officers, uh, you know that locally employed staff, foreign nationals, are essential uh, to the success of our embassy and missions abroad, and we all feel uh, this loss. And I want to thank them and the other uh, foreign nationals who help support our embassy operations overseas, and I know uh, you join me in doing that as well. So now I'm going to introduce um, each of you, um, and after that we'll uh, hear from you, and then we'll ask some questions. That sound good? All right. So Ms. Jennifer Adams um, is the nominee, the president's nominee, to be ambassador to Cabo Verde. Uh, she's a member of the Senior Foreign Service uh, for USAID. Uh, she joined the National War College as a USAID faculty representative in January of 2022. Before that, she served as USAID mission director to Mozambique. And from 2014 to 2017, she served as USAID's Bureau for Global Health Deputy Assistant Administrator and then Acting Assistant Administrator for Global Health. Her 25 years of service have also taken her to China, Senegal, and Brazil. Before that, I'm pleased to say she was from Baltimore. Uh, and uh, she graduated from Johns Hopkins, um, a great Maryland institution. Welcome uh, to you, uh, Dr. Adams. Uh, Ms. He Ms. Heather Var Variava uh, is the nominee uh, to be the ambassador to the Lao People's Democratic Republic. Uh, she's also a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and currently serves as Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Manila. Prior to her appointment to the Philippines, uh, Ms. Variva was Deputy Chief of Mission and Charge Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Jakarta and was the U.S. Consul General in Surabaya, Indonesia. She also served in Washington as Director of the Office of Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Maldives, and Bhutan, in the Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs, in addition to several other posts across South and Southeast Asia, making her a true expert on our partners in the region. Congratulations on your nomination. Ms. Julie Turner is the nominee to be Special Envoy on North Korean human rights issues. She is currently the Director of the Office of East Asia and the Pacific in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor at the Department of State. She has also served as the Director for Southeast Asia at the National Security Council, in addition to more than 16 years of service in the Office of East Asia and the Pacific. She's dedicated much of her service to promoting human rights in North Korea and her experience overseas, including a tour as Special Assistant in the Office of the Special Envoy on Korean Human Rights Issues, uh, gives her a special expertise in this position. She also my friend Senator Rick also earned a degree from the University of Maryland. Congratulations on your nomination. Mr. Matthew Murray is the nominee to be the United States Senior Official uh, to the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation, APEC, uh, with the rank of ambassador. Uh, he is also a career member of the Senior Foreign Service. He has served as United States Senior Official for a APEC since February 2022. Mr. Murray previously led the State Department's Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs as 
the senior bureau official from August 2021 to January 2022, and served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Trade Policy and Negotiations from September 2020 to August 2021. His career has taken him to Beijing, Shanghai, Dar es Salaam, and New Delhi. And again, I know you won't forget your Maryland roots. Someone is nominating some great Marylanders here. I've noticed you haven't called on anybody else's home state, town, or I'm sure you, university. I'm sure you will fill in the blanks. If I, um, Ms. Jennifer Johnson uh, is the nominee to be ambassador to the Federated States of Micronesia. She's a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and is currently serving as chief of staff to the Undersecretary for Management. Her career has taken her around the world to Cuba, Chile, and the UAE, and Turkey. She's also held positions here at home at the U.S. Mission uh, to the United Nations in New York, the Office of Undersecretary for Management, the Executive Secretariat, the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs, and the Bureau of Global Talent Management. Congratulations on your nomination. So thank all of you uh, for uh, your service uh, to our country. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to you, uh, Dr. Adams, uh, for your testimony. Thank you. Uh, Chairman Van Hollen, Ranking Member Ricketts, and distinguished members of the committee, I am honored to appear before you today. I am deeply grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for the confidence they have shown in me as the President's nominee for U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Cabo Verde. If confirmed, I will work closely with you and other members of Congress to advance our nation's security and foreign policy interests. I would like to thank my family, especially my husband, Dr. Wayne Quillen, and my three sons, Eugene, Sam, and Kelly, for all their support and for sharing our family life overseas. Mr. Chairman, my interest in economic development in Africa began with my college education and deepened as a Marshall Scholar in the UK where I completed a PhD in economics at Cambridge University after field work in a rural area of Zimbabwe. I have proudly served the American people for the past 30 years as a foreign service officer with the US Agency for International Development. With USAID, I successfully advanced US goals for in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, Brazil, and Asia, and managed large, complex interagency programs such as PEPFAR, the President's Malaria Initiative, Power Africa, Feed the Future, Anti-Wildlife Trafficking, and Humanitarian Disaster Relief. I have enjoyed mentoring and promoting employees of every color, race, religion, gender, and sexual orientation, and I have focused on listening to and working closely with our locally employed staff overseas. If confirmed, I will continue to support and enhance diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in our workforce and in our programs. Cabo Verde is a long-standing partner and the site of our first consulate in Africa over 200 years ago. Cabo Verde is a success story in terms of economic development and improving the lives of its people, having progressed from deep poverty at independence from Portugal in 1975 to lower middle-income status today. Cabo Verde is also a thriving democracy with a multi-party system, free and fair elections, and a vibrant civil society and is a strong partner on promoting respect for human rights in the region and on the international stage. The United States, especially the Northeast, is home to many people of Cabo Verdean descent, 
And this diaspora community is an important link between our countries. I know from my one visit to Cabo Verde in the mid-2000s that the warm and hospitable Cabo Verdean people admire American culture and traditions and welcome further partnership with the United States. Strengthening security cooperation is a key objective between the United States and Cabo Verde, including maritime security and law enforcement partnerships that protect the country's exclusive economic zone, combat drug and other illicit trafficking, reduce illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing, and oppose transnational crime. Increasing U.S. investment and bilateral trade is similarly a key objective that will deepen commercial ties and support Cabo Verde as its economy recovers from the COVID pandemic. Further engagement with Cabo Verde, a small island nation on climate action, will promote greater economic resilience, socio and economic inclusion of remote and vulnerable populations, and progress toward development goals. Given the opportunity, I will support these key U.S. policy objectives. If confirmed, I would seek to leverage Cabo Verde's strong historical links and shared values with the United States to foster a cooperative environment for increased partnerships in security cooperation, commerce, education, and public diplomacy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and members, uh, for the opportunity to address you today, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Uh, thank you, Dr. Adams. Next, we'll turn to Ms. Variava. Chairman Van Hollen, Ranking Member Ricketts, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for considering my nomination to be the next United States Ambassador to the Lao People's Democratic Republic. I am grateful for the faith that President Biden and Secretary Blinken have placed in me to represent the United States in Laos. I appreciate the opportunity to answer your questions and hear firsthand your thoughts about our relationship with Laos. If confirmed, I look forward to working with the committee and other members of Congress to advance the interests of the United States, protect the safety of our citizens, and strengthen the bilateral relationship for the benefit of both our countries. I would like to take a moment to thank some of my family whose support and guidance have shaped my life in important ways. First, my mother Catherine and my late father Martin, a U.S. Navy veteran, who fostered my lifelong love of learning and who have supported me every step of the way, even when it took me far from home. I would like to thank my, my husband Billy, whose unwavering support and patience has been a strong foundation for our family, including our sons Nick and Nate. They have embraced life in the U.S. Foreign Service with fortitude and good humor. And as a proud mom, I have to note that my older son just graduated from Creighton University in Omaha. I just came back from Nebraska this morning. Thank weekend. you. <laughs> in addition to my family, I also want to thank the many U.S. Embassy and consulate teams with whom I've had the honor to serve, especially the dedicated local staff who are the backbone of our overseas operations. During nearly 27 years in the Foreign Service, I have served in South and Southeast Asia, advocating for U.S. interests, building strategic partnerships, and engaging a diverse range of stakeholders to promote democratic values and private sector-led economic growth. My experience in the Philippines, Indonesia, and Vietnam, among others, has underscored for me the importance of American leadership to ensure a free, open, and resilient Indo-Pacific region. 
Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Ricketts, as part of our Indo-Pacific strategy, the United States welcomes a strong and unified Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, that leads in the Southeast Asia and beyond. We support ASEAN in its efforts to deliver sustainable solutions to the region's most pressing challenges. As part of our work in ASEAN, I believe close cooperation with Laos is essential for a stronger, safer, more prosperous region and for U.S. interests in the Indo-Pacific. Laos is playing an increasingly important role in the region and will be in the driver's seat next year as ASEAN chair. The United States, of course, has a complicated history with Laos. During our involvement in the war in Indochina in the 1960s and 70s, more than 2 million tons of bombs were dropped over Laos. The relationship between the United States and Laos remains influenced by this war legacy. Thanks to Congress's continued support, the United States has partnered with Laos to address unexploded ordnance, even as the Lao government has actively supported the fullest possible accounting for U.S. personnel still missing in Laos from the war years. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with Congress on our efforts to remove unexploded ordnance from Laos. I will ensure we continue to address this history while also working to expand and further normalize our relationship. Our programs in health, nutrition, agriculture, education, English language training, law enforcement cooperation, and more show our commitment to the U.S.-Lao relationship. We will also continue to work with Laos as the country implements a strategy to diversify its economy and, where appropriate, educate U.S. firms about the benefits of doing business in Laos. As our relationship with Laos has grown, so has our outreach to the people of Laos. There is no better example of a U.S. commitment to Laos than our American Center in the capital of Vientiane, which, with the support of Congress, is scheduled for a significant expansion. A larger American center will help us respond to the young people of Laos who have a huge interest in the United States and in English language training. Our experienced U.S. Embassy team in Vientiane is dedicated to defending U.S. national interests and strengthening the U.S.-Lao relationship. If confirmed, I will be honored to lead them. I will make their safety and well-being my top priority and will join their efforts to support the Lao people and help Laos develop into a truly independent, successful country that is a valuable partner in pursuing our joint goals of regional peace and prosperity. Mr. Chairman, Rankin Mengwarikidis, and members of the committee, thank you for your consideration of my nomination, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, uh, Ms. Variava. And now we'll turn to Ms. Turner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Chairman Van Hollen, Ranking Member Ricketts, and distinguished members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to serve as the Special Envoy on North Korean Human Rights Issues with the rank of Ambassador. I am grateful for the confidence shown by the President and Secretary Blinken in nominating me. As a Korean-American adoptee, it was my childhood dream to serve the country that welcomed me and I've been privileged to do so as a career civil service employee for 20 years. I entered the State Department in 2003 as an eager presidential management fellow, finding a home in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, and having an opportunity to work at the National Security Council as well. I have spent the last two decades promoting human rights, not just as U.S. values, but as critical interests directly tied to our national security. 
One of my first assignments in DRL was to staff the first special envoy on North Korean human rights during President George W. Bush admi Bush's administration. With great humility and appreciation, I sit here today seeking your support for that same position. If confirmed, I will work closely with you and all members to advance our nation's interests through the promotion of human rights in North Korea. The human rights situation in the DPRK is one of the most protracted human rights crises in the world. And the COVID-19 pandemic has allowed Kim Jong-un to tighten his control over all aspects of life in the isolated country. As the DPRK's human rights record has deteriorated, the connection between its widespread violations and abuses and the threat it poses to international security are clear. The regime's human rights abuses are inextricably linked to its weapons program, which are funded through the exploitation and abuse of the North Korean people. Thousands of North Koreans are exported abroad and subjected to conditions that amount to forced labor. School children are subject to mass mobilizations and food distribution policies favor the military, leaving millions of North Koreans food insecure. The people of North Korea have suffered far too long under these abusive policies. If confirmed, I will focus on five key areas. First, I will work with partners and allies, including the ROK, to re-energize international efforts to promote human rights and increase access to uncensored information in the DPRK. I will also empower and elevate the efforts of North Korean escapees, whose first-hand experiences, networks, and analysis are invaluable. Second, I will seek to reinvigorate accountability efforts at the UN. I will prioritize efforts to resume the open briefing at the UN Security Council on the human rights situation in the DPRK and coordinate with like-minded governments in advance, to advance accountability for those responsible for human rights violations in the DPRK. Third, I will undertake efforts to urge the DPRK to respect human rights and fundamental freedoms and to provide for the needs of the people. I will call for the repeal of repressive laws and for assurances that international aid organizations will have access to provide assistance in an independent and principled manner, including to the most vulnerable populations. Fourth, I will focus on protection of North Korean refugees, including by pressing governments to uphold their respective non-refoulement obligations, working with governments to facilitate UNHCR access to North Korean asylum seekers and working to ensure North Koreans continue to have access to U.S. resettlement programs. I have had the honor of welcoming many North Korean escapees to the United States over the years and I'm proud to call many of them my friends. These individuals overcame unimaginable odds in search of freedom and are now business owners, soldiers, civil service employees, and great Americans. Fifth, I will engage with the Korean-American community to identify divided families in the United States who have family members in the DPRK and to advocate for the urgent reunification of these families. To that end, I will partner closely with the Republic, Republic of Korea to advance family reunions, including for Korean abductees and their loved ones. And I will also work with Japan and other partners to press for the immediate resolution of, Japanese, of the of Japanese abductees issue. In closing, I want to thank my parents, Fred and Joan, and my siblings, Brad and Lindsay, for teaching me to have faith, to work hard, and to serve others. I also want to thank my talented and compassionate children, Olivia, Eli, Elise, and Emma, who drive me to be a better human, along with my best friend and partner, George. I love you all. Thank you for your unwavering support and gracious under understanding when humanitarian crises have kept me at work late. 
Lastly, thank you to my colleagues in DRL and the State Department who have mentored, encouraged, and inspired me. Mr. Chairman, ranking member, members of the committee, thank you for your consideration of my nomination, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Turner. Uh, now we're going to turn to Mr. Murray. Chair Van Hollen, uh, Ranking Member Ricketts, it's an honor to appear before the committee today as the nominee for the rank of ambassador during the tenure of my service as U.S. Senior Official for Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation. I'd like to thank President Biden and Secretary Blinken for the trust they have placed in me, as well as for the signal this nomination sends to the Asia-Pacific region of the United States' commitment to APEC. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with the Senate to advance our goals in this important multilateral organization. I am proud to have served the United States as a State Department Foreign Service Officer for the past 25 years. And I'm blessed to have made this journey together with my wife, Sharla, who's here with me today, and our three sons, Joshua, a middle school teacher in York, Pennsylvania, Noah, a cadet at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, and Daniel, an aspiring computer scientist and engineer who will begin his university studies at Virginia Tech this fall. Together, our family has experienced six foreign postings and 11 international moves with all of the highs and lows such a life entails. Like all Foreign Service families, our family endured many challenges in service to our country, and I'll always be grateful to Sharla, Joshua, Noah, and Daniel for their selfless service. Sharla and I both learned a commitment to service from fathers who grew up poor, but worked incredibly hard to provide for their families and contribute to their communities. And from mothers who espouse the virtues of education, my own mother, Susan, was an elementary school teacher for more than three decades. Charlotte and I both attended Anne Arundel County Public Schools in Maryland and both attended college and graduate school with the aid of scholarships. So today's hearing, therefore, is further evidence to our family that the American dream is still achievable for hardworking families across our great country. I first traveled to the Asia-Pacific region as a student intern with USAID in Jakarta, Indonesia in 1995. That summer was life-changing for me as I was inspired by the region's economic dynamism and opportunity. Since joining the State Department in 1998, I have dedicated most of my career across five presidential administrations to enhancing U.S. economic engagement with and upholding international rules and principles in the Asia-Pacific region, including through APEC. APEC's 21 member economies account for nearly half of global trade, including seven of the United States' top 10 trading partners, and companies from APEC uh, economies have invested more than $1.7 trillion in the United States. Our economic prosperity, therefore, relies on continued U.S. leadership in this pivotal region. APEC includes partners on both sides of the Pacific with a wide range of economic conditions, and it provides a platform to engage 21 economies including, importantly, Taiwan, which is a full member of APEC. APEC historically has been an incubator for innovative solutions to economic challenges, and the United States hosted the first ever APEC leaders meeting in Seattle in 1993. 30 years later, we are hosting APEC again this year, building on the impactful U.S. host year in 2011, when we advanced significant policy initiatives on women's economic empowerment, green growth, and regulatory reform. Of course, APEC today faces daunting challenges, including global economic headwinds and the need for our region's economies to recover fully from the COVID-19 pandemic, Russia's war against Ukraine, the PRC's efforts to undermine the rules-based international order, environmental challenges that need to be addressed, especially the climate crisis, and the imperative to develop digital rules for the 21st century. 
And we need to ensure economic growth is inclusive and strengthens communities across our region, including in our own country. Ultimately, our work in APEC must prioritize helping communities at home. Our whole of government interagency effort in APEC is a diplomatic effort, but it will mean nothing if we're not lifting up communities across the United States. Our focus in APEC should be on creating American jobs, supporting businesses large and small, attracting foreign investment, advancing the industries of the 21st century by promoting better rules and norms, setting a path to sustainability, and ensuring workers and underrepresented groups are full participants in the economy of the future. Given these ambitious goals against the backdrop of the significant geopolitical and economic challenges the Asia-Pacific region faces, I would argue that U.S. engagement in APEC is more important than ever before. If confirmed, I would pledge to be an ambassador for all Americans in this effort, consistent with the U.S. APEC host year theme of creating a resilient and sustainable future for all. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you, Mr. Murray. And now we'll turn to Ms. Johnson. Thank you, Chairman Van Hollen, Ranking Member Ricketts, and distinguished members of the committee. I am honored to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as U.S. Ambassador to the Federated States of Micronesia. I am grateful for the confidence that President Biden and Secretary Blinken have placed in me with this nomination. If confirmed, I look forward to closely working with Congress to advance U.S. national security interests by reinvigorating our ties with our Pacific neighbors, particularly with our close friend and partner, the Federated States of Micronesia. I'd like to thank my family, my husband, Pat, who is here today, my daughters, Marin and Nola, for their support and willingness to join me around the world. I'd also like to thank my parents, siblings, and Foreign Service colleagues and mentors, I'm grateful for their guidance, inspiration, and support. And thank you, Senator Van Hollen, for all the work that you and Senator Sullivan do for our Foreign Service community. My interest in the Pacific Islands began when I was a student in Australia, and it has only grown over the years. Serving the American people is a tradition that runs deep in my family. My grandfather served in World War II, one with the Navy in the Pacific, and the other received a Purple Heart while serving in the Army. My parents were school teachers, as is my sister. My grandmother and mother-in-law were nurses, and my father-in-law is a Marine. The United States is a Pacific nation. We enjoy a close partnership with the Federated States of Micronesia based on deep historical, economic, and cultural ties and our shared democratic values. If confirmed, I look forward to deepening the already strong ties between our two countries by supporting their sovereignty and security and working together to strengthen democratic institutions. For the Federated States of Micronesia, agreement on economic assistance related to the compact is imminent. If confirmed and pending the approval of implementing legislation, I look forward to operationalizing the new agreements to make tangible and lasting improvements in the lives of their citizens. During the pandemic, we saw the strength of the partnership the Federated States of Micronesia was included as part of the rollout of vaccines and the distribution of PPE from the very start. If confirmed, I look forward to working with Micronesia to help the country continue to recover from the economic effects of the pandemic, strengthen the healthcare system, and combat transnational threats. The Pacific Islands are highly vulnerable to natural disasters whose devastating effects have imperiled the livelihoods of many. 
If confirmed, I will work closely with key stakeholders to improve disaster preparedness and strengthen climate resilience. The United States is responsible for the defense of the Federated States of Micronesia and their citizens, in turn, serve in the U.S. military. Their service is a sacred trust, and if confirmed, I will work with the Department of Veterans Affairs to improve the assistance that these veterans receive. Over the course of my career, one thing has always been clear. Our people are our most important asset. If confirmed, I will make the safety and security of U.S. citizens and our embassy team my top priority. As we expand our footprint across the Pacific, I will support our teams in these remote locations to develop a new cadre of Pacific experts who will be ready to lead in the decades ahead on Indo-Pacific issues. Chairman Van Hollen, Ranking Member Ricketts, if confirmed, I look forward to working with you and the members of this committee to advance U.S. interests in the Federated States of Micronesia and the broader Indo-Pacific and to sustain and expand the progress that we've achieved in this important partnership. Thank you for inviting me here today and considering my nomination. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, uh, Ms. Johnson. Thank all of you for your testimony and in listening to all of you. It, it's, it's clear to me why the president nominated each of you for these positions. Ms. Johnson, if I could start with you and you referenced in your testimony um, the upcoming signing of the next uh, agreement, uh, the Compact of Free Association. I know the president had hoped to be in Papua New Guinea. It's unfortunate that he's had to cancel his trip to get back here, although I hope we will resolve the budget issues. Uh, but could you speak a little bit to uh, what you expect to see in the new compact um, and what your role as ambassador, if confirmed, will be uh, in terms of implementing that? So what's, what's different about the next compact compared to the current one, and how will you go about uh, implementing it? Absolutely. Thank you for your question. So I actually haven't seen the new compact because Ambassador, our special envoy, Ambassador Joe Yoon, is in the region right now and they're putting the final touches on the compact with the Federated States of Micronesia. Um, hopefully in the next few days or weeks we will see the actual document. I see the ambassador's role administrating the, con the compact as twofold. I see it as working closely with the Department of Interior to ensure that U.S. tax dollars are used responsibly in all the areas that they're being used. And I also see it as making sure that we can improve the economic climate in the Federated States of Micronesia so that it can be implemented successfully. I appreciate that. I had a number of discussions um, over the last couple of years with some of the people involved in the negotiations. I, I know one of the things that um, Micronesia was interested in was a, a little more uh, input and influence over exactly how some of the funds were spent on issues uh, regarding a local economic development, other economic issues. So uh, when we do see the final agreement, we look forward to working uh, with you if confirmed on, on next steps. Um, Mr. Murray, if I, if I could um, ask you about APEC, because I agree with you, it's a very important organization. Uh, we have lots of uh, important economic issues at stake uh, in the Indo-Pacific. I, I returned recently from a trip to both Vietnam and Indonesia, uh, where there were all sorts of discussions about greater U.S. Uh, investment. 
Uh, and of course, uh, we are working to try to uh, get agreement on IPEF. And there's a significant overlap, as you know, between the countries we're seeking to have participate in IPEF um, and the APEC members, although there are some members of APEC that are clearly not part of that, including China and Russia. Can you speak a little bit to what, what the role of APEC is, if any, what role you will have um, in using that as a forum uh, to advance IPEF, uh, and if not IPEF, you know, what other specific initiatives uh, do you see um, you being most focused on if confirmed? Well, thank you, Senator, for the question. Uh, you know, the Biden administration, as you know, has been very focused in its Indo-Pacific strategy on trying to have a very comprehensive uh, approach uh, to the region, and certainly that includes uh, the economic prosperity uh, pillar. And, you know, I think it's really important as we go out and engage that we recognize that there are a number of different mechanisms, uh, different organizations that we can work with, and different partners that we can work with um, to achieve some of these goals. I think the overarching objectives are, you know, very straightforward, as you've already heard from uh, partners in the region. Uh, we need, you know, better trade and investment uh, flows, trade facilitation. Uh, we need supply chains that work for everyone. We need uh, to address some of the decarbonization goals. We need to move forward on uh, anti-corruption and regulatory reform. And these are some of the similar uh, objectives that we work towards whether we're looking at it through IPEF or through ASEAN or through the Quad or through uh, APEC. And so I think that there's a complementarity across all of these different regional groupings um, which can uh, you know, work all in the same direction. I think where APEC comes into that is the ability through a consensus-based non-binding way to try to work to resolve a lot of the behind-the-border challenges and, and some of the issues surrounding sustainability, the digital economy, uh, also just economic resiliency broadly, and trying to be mutually supportive of what we're doing in IPEF. Uh, there are 12 partners in common uh, between IPEF and APEC, and it certainly would be our goal uh, to work with uh, the others in the administration who are working on IPEF to make sure that our, um, you know, our work is all moving in the same direction and as you point out, importantly, to be able to support our businesses as they go overseas and also to attract additional investment to the United States. Thank you. Appreciate it. Senator Ricketts. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And again, congratulations on your nominations to everybody here on the panel. And again, thank you for your service to our great nation. And uh, also thank you to your families uh, because I know they serve alongside with you, whether it's Ms. Turner's late hours or being stationed overseas. And as a former governor who led a number of trade missions, I want to especially thank foreign service members who do live overseas because I know that that can sometimes be tough duty and I really appreciate I've always found our embassies in every part of the world just staffed by those highly qualified people. So really appreciate what you've done for us. Uh, Ms. Murray, I'd like to talk about APEC as well. So Russia has launched this illegal war against Ukraine. Eight million people are displaced outside the country. Five million people displaced within the country. The Russians have targeted civilians, apartment buildings and so forth, with rocket attacks, missiles, airstrikes. 8,500 civilians have been killed. 14,000 have been wounded. 6,000 Ukrainian children have been kidnapped and taken to Russia. 
There's uh, reports of you know, 65,000 war crimes, including rape and summary executions. And yet in your, uh, your a statement in December, you said that as good stewards of APEC, the United States, when it hosts the Leaders' Conference this fall in November in San Francisco, that will invite Russia. So my question is, is there anything Russia can do that would get them reconsidered as a membership? Is it appropriate now to reconsider <coughs> Russia's membership? And if... Uh, you know, if you were confirmed, what, how are you thinking about Russia's participation in APEC? Yes, thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, we very much share the concern that you've just outlined about Russia's uh, aggression towards an invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, at APEC, uh, with Russia as a member, one of the things the United States has done is worked very closely with like-minded partners to make sure that in that organization we're condemning uh, Russia's uh, invasion, uh, condemning the war. And so, so I think they did that at your last conference. Would you do that again in San Francisco? Would you organize that again? So, yes. Yeah, so in the leaders' uh, meeting in November in uh, Bangkok, there was a part of the leader's statement was condemning uh, the war in, in Ukraine and condemning Russia for its actions and also um, uh, uh, talking about the economic impacts that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is also having on the region at large. And, you know, APEC as an economic organization, that is, you know, one way in which we're pushing back is to highlight those, uh, those economic impacts. I think what we've said about our U.S. host year, and I think the interview you're referring to in December, is to say that we have invited so far Russia to, you know, participate in meetings, and they've participated in a couple of the lower-level meetings um, that we're having, including meetings that we're having uh, this week in Detroit. Uh, but we have not made any decisions yet on the leader's uh, participation and certainly uh, not on Vladimir Putin's participation. And that will be a decision that the White House will have to make, and that will be an issue that we'll continue to want to consult very closely uh, with the committee on as we go forward. All right, great. Well, let's talk about the People's Republic of China, because you mentioned uh, Taiwan as well, and this being one of the organizations that they are in, albeit as Chinese Taipei. And there has been the suggestion, and of course the People's Republic of China has been working to isolate Taiwan. There's been the suggestion that uh, President Biden invite President Tsai to come to the meeting this year. I don't believe uh, the uh, president of Taiwan has ever been to one of these meetings. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Uh, if that were to happen, would you support the president in um, inviting President Tsai to come to San Francisco? Well, as you, as you referred to, Senator, there's been a three-decade-long uh, common practice of Taiwan choosing to send a leader's representative uh, to uh, each of the APEC leaders' meetings, and that's been the case in the past. Um, but certainly, you know, we want to be able to support Taiwan to the fullest extent possible. I think if confirmed, um, the, having the ambassador rank uh, would, would be uh, very helpful as well because I'll be you know, traveling out, planning to travel out to Taiwan uh, to also engage them and, uh, and extend an invitation uh, for um, a leader's representative to attend the, the Leaders' Week in November. Um, but certainly, again, we would be consulting closely with the White House, and we want to consult closely with the committee as we go forward on uh, the decision on, on who attends from Taiwan. Mm -hmm. uh, great. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, if uh, that was possible, and because the People's Republic of China would also presumably have folks, do you think there's an opportunity then to maybe create some dialogue between the People's Republic and Taiwan at that meeting? I do think one of the strengths of APEC is that every single time there are meetings, uh, that there is that opportunity uh, for discussions between China and Taiwan. It's really unique in that way, one of the only organizations in the world where both of them participate. And so to the extent that we can create opportunities like that, 
that's, uh, I think, a wonderful benefit of APEC as a platform. And certainly, if there are those kinds of opportunities to facilitate, uh, we would certainly want to support that. Great. Thank you, Ms. Murray. Thank, thank you. Um, thank you, Senator. Um, Ms. Turner, uh, congratulations again on your, your nomination and uh, your story about how one of your first jobs at the State Department was staffing the person who is now, who held the position you're nom not nominated for now is, I think, a um, in, in, important informative story about sticking to it, and we're glad to have your nomination. You know, the last time the UN Commission of Inquiry and Human Rights looked at the situation of the DPRK, uh, they found uh, that the North Korean government is committing horrible atrocities, including crimes against humanity, against its own people. Uh, unfortunately, that situation has not changed uh, since that UN Commission of Inquiry was conducted uh, when I was in the Republic of Korea, I think five years ago uh, now. Uh, one of my starkest memories uh, is talking to escapees uh, from uh, North Korea. And we, of course, have escapees in South Korea. We have them in the United States. Could you maybe talk a little bit about how you can use this position to tell their stories um, and, and have the public get a better understanding of the human rights atrocities? Because we all know about uh, you know, North Korea's nuclear brinkmanship, and there's a lot of focus on that, appropriately so. Uh, but I think we, we all collectively need to do a better job of talking about uh, the atrocious human rights situation in North Korea. So can you talk about how we can better get that story out there? Yes, thank you um, for that question, Mr. Chairman. I 100% agree that the voices of North Korean escapees are absolutely critical in helping to expose to the world the types of gross human rights violations that are happening in North Korea. One of my top priorities will be seeking ways to help amplify those voices in the multilateral space in particular, um, and where possible to press for and have the US lead on side events at the United Nations Human Rights Council, um, as well as the UN General Assembly. I think also having the North Korean human rights situation placed back on the UN Security Council agenda is another opportunity to have those escapee voices heard on a broader international level. Uh, I think the other area in which I would seek to uh, engage with the escapee community is also with regard to the U.S. government's access to information programs. Our USAGM has, through Voice of America and Radio Free Asia, for many years broadcast information into North Korea. And I think the authentic voices of North Korean escapees are really critical in that process. And so looking for ways to incorporate them in sending messages back to North Koreans so that they know that the US and others around the world support them would be a very helpful tool. Thank you, and I look forward to staying in touch on, on those issues. Uh, Ms. Variava, um, we obviously have lots of uh, room to grow in terms of our bilateral relationship uh, with Laos. Um, as you mentioned in your testimony, they will also be assuming uh, the chairmanship the head of uh, ASEAN. Uh, next year, I was recently in Indonesia, and you know my perception is they're trying to make the most of, of their opportunity uh, at the head. I think the, 
I think President Obama uh, was in Laos back in 2016 um, or 2017, and that 2016 um, for the ASEAN meeting. So, uh, as we look forward, as we look to the, the passing of the baton at some point um, from Indonesia to Laos, what what can you do if you're confirmed as ambassador to make sure that um, the chairmanship of ASEAN under Laos? Um, addresses uh, our, our concerns and appropriately reflects uh, the views of all the ASEAN members. Thank you very much, Senator. Yes, uh, I, I believe in Laos. They still talk about the visit of President Obama back in 2016 when Laos hosted ASEAN the last time. Uh, they are preparing, as I understand it, for their upcoming host year in 2024. And uh, the United States and other like-minded partners are helping Laos to prepare for that. It's a it's a heavy lift uh, with a lot of meetings throughout the year. So we're looking forward to helping them get ready uh, for that uh, uh, chair year and to support them and advocate with them on the issues that are of importance to us in the ASEAN region um, and to continuing uh, to pursue the goals that we have in ASEAN, which is a, a fundamental uh, partner in our Indo-Pacific strategy. And I look forward, if confirmed, to uh, supporting Laos in that regard. Thank you. Senator Ricketts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ms. Johnson, let's talk about uh, Micronesia. So we all know that the People's Republic of China has been trying to undermine our authority in the world. President Xi has said that he wants to be the world-dominating power, and they don't like the system that we've set up that has kept world peace essentially since World War II. As part of that, a letter was leaked in March from the outgoing president of the Federated States of Micronesia, David Panello, who really showed the depths of how the CCP is different. They have different values than we have. In his letter, uh, it detailed a number of extraordinary things on a political warfare, really operating inside the gray zone of what is, is legal or crossing over that, that line. Um, what, they were, uh, what he described is uh, Chinese envelopes of cash uh, and trips on private planes trying to create influence among politicians and administrators to advance their personal interest in lieu of their national interest. Um, in another instance, the Chinese ambassador kept calling to push the Chinese COVID-19 vaccine so much that the president had to change his cell phone number. And uh, when the gifts didn't work, he uh, claimed that the Chinese um, ambassador had made direct personal threats, or Chinese officials made direct personal threats against his safety. He also recommended that Micronesia actually switch its diplomatic recognition to Taiwan and, and claim to have secured a promise of $50 million from Taiwan plus an annual payment of $15 million to plug in the gap there. And I was glad to see, uh, glad to hear you also talk about the uh, U.S. Micronesia uh, uh, Compact for Free Association and how that's going. So, Ms. Johnson, were you aware of this letter that had been leaked earlier this March? And what, if so, what are your thoughts on the CCP's pressuring of uh, the Federated States of Micronesia? Thank you for the question, Senator. Yes, I'm aware of former President David Panuelo's letter from March 9th, and I share your concern. The PRC is America's most consequential geopolitical challenge, and as their involvement in the region has grown, we've seen a range of increasingly problematic behavior. I think it's really important to approach this eyes wide open and work with our allies and partners 
and show up, listen, and help the Federated States of Micronesia build their resilience and help them avoid these predatory economic practices. I think there are many ways that we can do this, and if confirmed, I would, I would work closely with the Federated States of Micronesia on this. I think it's a top priority. Do you think the uh, President's comments in his letter are credible? Sir, I believe there's probably some credibility to them. Okay. All right, Dr. Adams, um, island nations off the coast of Africa are increasingly become part of our strategy to be able to counter the People's Republic of China. Uh, what is your assessment of the People's Republic of China's involvement in Cabo Verde, and how much does the CCP uh, influence pose a threat to our interests there, and what can we best do to counter that? Thank you, Senator. Uh, Cabo Verde has indicated, I think, consistently that their preferred partner is the United States. There is Chinese investment. There is China, there are Chinese people. There is a Chinese presence um, in in Cabo Verde. Uh, I think it is less in a debt distress situation than some other African nations um, that owe quite a lot of debt to China. But I think it's a cause for concern. I share your. Uh, perception that we need to continue to monitor. We need to continue to do our best to be a partner uh, to Cabo Verde and to advance our interests both um, in the security realm as well as in the economic realm. Great. Thank you very much. Mr. Chairman, Alex, I'll turn back to you because I see we've got Senator okay. Duckworth there. Thank you. Senator Duckworth. Thank you uh, to the chairman and ranking member. Uh, Ms. Variava, uh, it's good to see you again. Uh, you started to talk about uh, um, ASEAN and also uh, Laos' uh, upcoming uh, uh, chairmanship year. Um, we've also seen in fits and starts to be sure regional efforts to improve the resiliency of more vulnerable members of the Mekong sub-region against PRC dominance. The Thailand-initiated Ayavadi Chaupriya Mekong Economic Cooperation Strategy, the ACMEX, uh, which Laos currently chairs, shows real potential in this regard. Is there more that we can do? Is, is there more, um, perhaps under the rubric of the Mekong-U.S. partnership or the ACMEX um, that would strengthen regional supports for Laos? Thank you, Senator. It's great to see you again. Um, yes, I do believe there is more that can be done um, uh, in the Mekong region, uh, and if confirmed, I look forward to working with Laos and uh, other partners in this regard. Uh, one of the big uh, areas in which, uh, through which the United States partners with the Mekong region is the Mekong-U.S. partnership, uh, which uh, Laos co-chairs with the United States. Um, we have uh, programs through that partnership that help uh, uh, improve the sustainability of projects and development, ensuring that um, the benefits of the uh, Mekong are, are used in a sustainable way, that we're looking after uh, water flows, the environment, fisheries, and the livelihoods of the people uh, who live along the Mekong. So that, uh, and there are other areas we partner as well, including in power. Um, so there are a lot of different ways that we can work with uh, Laos and the Mekong countries to improve the sustainable use of the Mekong River. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Murray, you've described um, incorporating gender equity into economic development as an important priority for the United States for APEC. Can you describe how that priority translates into action during the U.S. APEC chair year? Absolutely. Thank you, Senator, for the question. 
So we have a very strong legacy in APEC because it was in 2011 that during the U.S. host year that we launched uh, the women's economic empowerment work uh, that's continued for the, uh, the last 12 years. And so one of the things that we're continue to try to do right now is to build on that um, through not only um, you know, working at the government to government level, but also incorporating a broad array of stakeholders and uh, also public-private collaboration to really try to advance that. And one of the real areas of focus uh, this year is on women-run small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, which, as you know, is across the region uh, is a real backbone of many of the economies in the Asia-Pacific region, and one that needs, you know, a backbone that needs a lot of support right now, particularly coming out of the COVID pandemic. So one of the things that we're trying to do um, through APEC is not just look at women's economic empowerment as, as one economic forum that we'll host or one event, but really try to embed gender equity across all of the various work streams uh, that we're advancing in APEC. So working on it through, for example, small and medium-sized enterprise uh, work streams, working on it as well through our health work streams and looking at gender equity in that space and really trying to you know, advance that priority uh, as we go forward uh, in the year. And so it's definitely a top priority for us. Uh, I think we have a really strong legacy of that in the United States. But also, it's not just the right thing to do, but it's the best thing for the economies of the region because if we're not fully engaging all members uh, of society in the economy, then we're leaving uh, you know, billions and billions of dollars in, in mm -hmm. potential productivity on the table. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think there's just so many ways that we can engage um, uh, within within Indo-Pacific. I mean, during my regular travels to the Indo-Pacific, I've really reinforced my belief that our engagement re regional partners cannot be built primarily solely around a strategic competition with the PRC, but whether it's gender equity, whether it's environmental policy, there are many opportunities to, to strengthen and deepen those relationships. Uh, I think we need to meet our partners where they are and, and meet them with the challenges that they currently face and figure out how we can work together to meet those needs, um, as well as our own needs as a nation. Um, and one of those needs, I think, is dealing with climate change. And dealing with climate change induce, in particular, sea level rise, and potentially, um, this is a pot potentially existential threat for many of the Pacific Island nations. Uh, Ms. Johnson, I know we touched on this when we sat down together earlier this year, but I want, what do you see as the key challenges for the United States in our efforts to bring the Pacific Island countries into close par closer partnership with the United States? And if confirmed, how would you work to address those challenges in the Federated States of Micronesia? Thank you for the question, Senator. It's great to see you again. Yes. I think the biggest challenges, aside from natural disasters and the PRC, are the location. And the Federated States of Micronesia is geographically far from here. And it's spread out over a million square miles and it has a vast space and it's difficult to get to via flights. Therefore, I think trying to keep the momentum going from everything that we've seen that's been such a positive advance um, over such a vast space will be challenging. However, if confirmed, I'm up for that challenge. Uh, thank you, I'm out of time, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, uh, yeah. Senator Duckworth. Um, I do have one more question uh, for you, Dr. Adams, on, on Cabo Verde. And I think as you indicated in your, your testimony, Cabo, Cabo Verde is one of the strongest democracies. Um, 
in the region. Uh, and I, I do want to uh, point out that last year, AFRICON, AFRICOM and Interpol uh, conducted uh, joint interdiction operations uh, with Cabo Verde law enforcement authorities to stop suspected illegal fishing uh, and convergent crimes uh, in the waters along the coast of West Africa uh, and the EEZ of Cabo Verde. Uh, I understand this cooperation resulted in the seizure of 6.5 tons of, suspected, of cocaine, uh, worth more than $350 million. Can you talk about how you could continue to build on that form of cooperation and how important is that kind of cooperation in terms of protecting the EEZ to Cabo Verde and other countries in, in West Africa? Thank you, Senator. It's an important question. Um, definitely, if confirmed, I would seek to support and further uh, the partnerships that have uh, begun between uh, the United States and Cabo Verde regarding maritime security and also regarding border security. Um, as was previously mentioned, for, for small island nations, it's a big challenge. It's a big ocean. <laughs> and so um, I think uh, all of us uh, would want to continue those partnerships, to deepen those partnerships, and to expand them, uh, partly because of the interest that Cabo Verde has in, in that security cooperation and also um, the location uh, in West Africa and the importance for that region as a whole. Thank you. Uh, Senator Ricketts. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Mr. Uh, Ms. Variava. Let's talk about Laos and debt. We know a lot of countries have run up debt under the People's Republic of China's Belt and Road Initiative, and Laos, unfortunately, is one of those countries. I think they had a project to build a railway from uh, Vientiane to the Yuan province, Yunnan province of uh, southern China. Uh, I think the initial cost was $6 billion, and now their overall debt, and that was part of an overall infrastructure uh, spending effort that is now racked up at the end of 2021, $14.5 billion worth of debt. It could be higher now since we're much on that. Uh, and that represent, at that time, it represented 89% of GDP. And, of course, that wasn't the only project. They, uh, the People's Republic of China helped build dams on the tributaries of the Mekong, including two on the Mekong River. Uh, what... You know, with, with actually, it's been about a year now since this railway has been opened. Has it been able to deliver the economic results that they were expecting from having that railway open? Thank you, Senator. I do not believe, I do not know yet what the economic uh, outcomes have been from opening the new railway line, which I think has been slow to get started in part because of pandemic closures of borders and so forth. However, there is no question that um, China, uh, excuse me, Laos is heavily indebted to the PRC, and that is a, a serious concern. Um, if confirmed, I would look forward to working with like-minded nations and international finance institutions um, to help give Laos the tools it needs uh, to manage this debt, uh, to make sure that agreements that it enters into with our other nations, including the PRC, are done in a way that benefit Laos and do not take advantage of Laos. Uh, so these are some of the things that, that I would do if confirmed to support Laos to be an uh, independent, uh, strong nation, even as it borders China. Do you think this project poses a financial risk? I think the project, uh, in a, as part of the overall debt, certainly does pose financial risk, yes, sir. And do you think that if there needs to be a debt restructuring that the People's Republic of China will 
be interested in helping Laos out with some sort of restructuring? Because you mentioned giving them the tools. What do you think? Um, I can't. I cannot speculate about what the PRC will do. Certainly, um, we will be looking to give Laos the tools it needs uh, to manage its debt properly. Uh, and um, I think that we want to give Laos a variety of tools to manage debt, to look for other uh, solutions, um, and to pressure um, uh, the PRC if necessary to ensure that Laos does not fail financially. My understanding is the People's Republic of China is generally not very keen on loan forgiveness. So I think there may be, have to be other solutions. But with that, Mr. Chairman, I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Senator Ricketts. And um, I, I think Senator Ricketts is right. It's important that uh, all of you, uh, if confirmed as our ambassadors, um, inform the countries um, that you're going to be dealing with that uh, there are big risks uh, to doing business with China, including debt traps. Uh, at the same time, and I think both Senator Ricketts and I would agree, we also have to step up our own game as what we're offering uh, in each of uh, these countries. Uh, and all of you are going to be part of, of that effort, not just with respect to our competition with China, but uh, just to build on strong bilateral uh, relations uh, between the United States and each of the countries you're you would be representing, where, where you'd be representing the United States um, if, if confirmed. Um, and I, I do have to say that, um, you know, the president right now is on his way, of course, to the G7, or he's arrived at the G7 meeting in Hiroshima. And I know a big part of that discussion uh, will be how do we deal with the, the challenges um, in the Indo-Pacific, uh, including making sure that uh, we work collectively to really enforce the sanctions against Russia, uh, but also that we address the very real challenges uh, posed by the PRC uh, throughout the region. It is unfortunate that the president will not be able to go to uh, Papua New Guinea. He'd be, as I understand it, the first president of the United States to visit a Pacific Island country. Um, and I know he was looking forward uh, to the Quad meeting in Australia. Uh, so I, I, I uh, that, that is unfortunately going to do some damage. Um, uh, the fact the president has to return back here uh, to deal with a very real uh, situation regarding uh, our, our budget. Um, and I know we both agree that we got to avoid default. But it, it is one of those costs that we're, we're seeing from, from the moment that we're in here. Let me just close by uh, thanking uh, Senator Ricketts, um, thanking all of you for your service to our country. Um, I think, Ms. Johnson, uh, you said uh, that people are our most important asset, and I know you're referring to the, the people you will be working with, but it also holds true uh, of all of you. Uh, thank you for mentioning uh, the work Senator Sullivan and I do as co-chairs of the Foreign Service Caucus. And uh, hearing all of you today uh, just reminds me of you know, why the two of us are so proud uh, to co-chair the Foreign Service Caucus. So thank you. Thank your families. Um, I look forward to supporting your nominations, and hopefully we can get you out to these uh, posts or your other assignments um, as quickly as possible so you can do this work on behalf of our country. Thank you very much. Uh, oh, let me. Uh, I, I, yeah, my housekeeping. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me. Um, for the information of the members, the record, the record will be kept open until close of business tomorrow, Thursday, May 18th. And with that, this hearing is adjourned.